and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants who were, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one another, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is, a, and it is marvelous in our eyes. They were, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's and they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died, then died, left, leaving no offspring. And the second took her, died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the book, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that, answered that he answered them well, asked him, 
which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no, one, no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater con condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he calls, called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The word of the Lord. We continue in our series on the Gospel of Mark. So we're in chapter 12, a long chapter. So thank you, Gwen, for reading it for us. Jesus is in Jerusalem now. He is, uh, there, the confrontations increase with specifically with the religious leaders, the political leaders of, of Israel, who are now, they're seeking to destroy him. So they've had enough. They're already plotting. They're scheming how to destroy him. Jesus' arrest and crucifixion are just days away. And so our text this morning records several controversies that will eventually lead to Jesus' death. And we see this tension between the message of Jesus and the reaction of the people. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to show you in this long chapter what the theme is. Okay, so I won't be able to spend a lot of time on any one particular piece, but I'll, I'll try to explain as much as I can. But mostly I want you to see the theme that runs through this chapter. So let me introduce this theme by telling you about my experience uh, doing puzzles with my family. Uh, it, this will all be clear in just a minute, okay? Over Christmas, I bought a puzzle for Jillian, for my wife, 
I think it was like 500-piece puzzle of uh, hot air balloons and people watching the, the balloons rise. So lots of colors, you know, very, very detailed. And uh, do you like doing puzzles? Who's puzzle makers? Some? Yeah. Bless you. Bless you for your patience, your attention to detail, uh, the amount of time you can sit. Uh, I think we may have learned that my, our family, we're just not puzzle people. I think that, that may have been our experience. It, it requires so much humility when, when, you do, when you do a puzzle. Because, of course, the goal, and I'm not going to assume everybody's done a puzzle, but I think most of us are probably familiar with the idea of a jigsaw puzzle. It's a picture that's been cut up by a madman, right? <laughs> and thrown into a box, and then they sell it to you to put it back together. It feels like there are extra steps there that did not need to be taken <laughs> for me, but maybe you enjoy that. And the idea is, and this is where humility comes in, is you need to find a home for every piece. And there is only one spot, right? There's just only one home for every piece of the puzzle. The idea is to put it together in such a way that it, it actually matches perfectly the picture on the box, right? And so you can't just find a piece and say, well, I really like this piece. Now, let me put it here, and then I'm going to find other pieces to complement it. You just can't do that. You have to find the right spot for that piece, and there's only one spot. When you are doing a puzzle with other people, which many enjoy, uh, which inevitably, in my experience, creates tensions, <laughs> you cannot just hold on to something that doesn't belong in your part of the puzzle. You have to share. You have to be open to the idea that your area may not include that piece. And no matter how much you like it, how much you want to force it in there, you just can't do it. So, so, so this, is, this is what we're doing with puzzles. Now, what I, when I'm reading this chapter, what I'm getting here is all these different people. We have the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians. And, you know, everybody's coming to Jesus. And it's as if they're bringing their half-constructed puzzles they're just bringing these pieces, right? And they're coming to Jesus, and they're looking at Jesus as another piece of that puzzle. And they're trying to fit him in. Their question basically is, through all these conversations, and we'll, we'll look through them, their basic question is, Jesus, how do you fit in my puzzle? What do you add, or how do you challenge, or how can I put you in my life puzzles? I'm bringing all these pieces, and we're seeing politics here, right? The afterlife, uh, you know, morality. These are all the pieces of the puzzle. We all have the same pieces. And now these different people are bringing the pieces to Jesus, and they're saying, Jesus, how will you fit here? And you know what Jesus does? He says, I don't fit in any of these puzzles because I'm not a piece of the puzzle, he says. He says, I'm the pattern. I'm the whole thing. This whole chapter hinges on this idea and this contrast of people trying to fit Jesus into their world, and Jesus says, I'm the world. <laughs> you got to bring the pieces to me, and I will put them in the right order. I will tell you what the pattern is. You don't even know what the picture is. 
You're working without the box. You're working without the pattern. And Jesus says, I will give you the pattern. But to receive this pattern from Jesus requires incredible humility. What you have to do when you come to Jesus, you have to say, Jesus, here are the pieces. Now you will now need to tell me where the home for every piece is. Because I don't know. And I refuse, this is what happens to Christians when you come to Jesus. You have to say, I refuse to try to force these pieces into my patterns. I will accept your pattern and I will reject whatever patterns I may have brought to the table before I met you. This is the point of this passage. Now, I give you, you know, a metaphor that hopefully helps, but I want to walk through it, and I will, I will show you this conflict, this contrast, this tension between us trying to fit Jesus into our patterns and Jesus saying, I'm the pattern, okay? So, so here is our, our outline, and please don't be scared. This will not be, the sermon will not be any longer than usual, which may scare some of you already, but I won't go over, Okay. So we're going to look, first of all, let's look at four conversations. We'll just walk through these controversies. Four conversations. Then we'll look at one parable. That's the parable of the vineyard. And then we'll look at two examples to push us to to apply this, okay? So four controversies or four conversations, one parable, and two examples. Okay. So the first conversation is in verses 13 through 17. And if you want to keep your Bibles open, I think it will help you. Verses 13 through 17, the Pharisees and the Herodians come. And by the way, these, these are groups of people that don't get along and don't agree on anything except on killing Jesus. This is the time they agree. The Herodians are supporters of Rome. They're part of that royal dynasty that submits to Rome and, and, and supports the regime. And the Pharisees are religious people that don't like Rome. And yet they get together, and their goal is to trap Jesus in his speech. This is what they want to do. They want Jesus to say something that will either cost him the popular support of the people or will put him at odds with the Roman regime or possibly both. And so they ask this question. This is a tricky question. It's meant to be tricky. Their question is, should we pay taxes to Caesar? In other words, should Jews pay taxes to Rome? If he says, yes, you should pay them, then people around him who are expecting the Davidic king to come and rule instead of Rome are going to turn away and leave him or potentially even kill him right there. If he says no, he would be in trouble with Rome and probably put to death as an insurrectionist. This is a, a genius plot here. But Jesus does something unpredictable, as he always does, it seems. He says, give me a denarius. He basically says, give me a coin. Give me a common Roman coin that, by the way, everybody's using because everybody's participating in the Roman system. And so he takes the denarius, which is what you would get paid if you were a laborer. This would be your day's wages, would be one denarius. He takes it and he says, what do you see on this coin? And if you saw a denarius, what you would see, if you had a, would you, maybe we should ask Jackson if he has a denarius in his collection. But, but if you look, you can Google it, you can see the images. What you will see is the image of Caesar. You have the picture of the emperor. 
and the name of Caesar on the coin. And what Jesus says is, look at what you see at the coin. You see the likeness of Caesar. You see his name. You see that's his coin, essentially. I mean, it's still common today, right? I mean, you have American money, have pictures of presidents. And so Jesus then says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, this is a popular saying, right? It's a famous saying of Jesus. And, and I think most people, maybe, at least some people, understand this saying as Jesus separating the two realms, right? Jesus says, well, this belongs to Caesar, this belongs to God. So don't mix those two. There's the realm of religion, so you can be a pious Jew. And here's the realm of politics, and you can, you can be an obedient citizen. What, what people think Jesus is saying, I think many people think Jesus is saying, keep these two realms separate, keep church and state separate. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. And by the way, historically, this is not how Christians have understood what Jesus is teaching here. What Jesus is doing is he's putting taxes and politics into the context of God's rule. He's not actually separating them, he's bringing them together. And he's putting one into the other. Now, let me give you a quote from an early Christian, Tertullian, uh, one of the early interpreters of the Bible. This is what he says. Jesus means, render the image of Caesar, which is on the coin, to Caesar, and the image of God, which is imprinted on the person, to God. You give Caesar only money, but to God, give yourself. When Jesus says, look at the coin and see whose image is on the coin, that's Caesar. But what's implied here is look at yourself and whose image is imprinted on you, and that's God. Which means that you are made in God's image, so your whole life belongs to God. Money, taxes, politics, those are just part of your life. But all of them find their meaning and purpose and place when you submit your whole life to God. Caesar and God are not two pieces of the puzzle that you need to find a way to put together or to keep them apart. Caesar is a piece, but God is the pattern. This is what he's saying. And that's why nobody can disagree with him. Because he's both affirming our specific responsibilities in, in, in the political order of the world. But he says it only works if these responsibilities find their meaning in the larger relationship to God. In other words, let me give you another example. When somebody comes to you and says, should I love my wife or should I love God? That's the wrong question, right? We would say, love your wife because you love God. Love your wife the way God wants you to love your wife, right? When somebody says, should I go to work or should I go serve God? We would say, that, that's a false dichotomy. Go to work because you want to serve God. So put these pieces in the larger context of God's rule. Your whole life belongs to God. And so use your life the way God wants you to use it. Okay, that's the first conversation, and you will see how this pattern repeats itself. The second conversation is in verses 18 through 27. 
This time it's the Sadducees who come to prove Jesus wrong. Now the Sadducees were a specific party, specific group that did not believe in the afterlife. They did not believe in the resurrection. They thought the whole idea of, of people living after they die was absurd. And their question, this, this riddle they bring to Jesus, is meant to show the absurdity of believing in the resurrection. This is, again, this is not a real question. This is a question to trick Jesus or to prove to Jesus that the resurrection is not real. And here's the riddle. He says, they say, if a woman uh, marries a man, now that man dies, by law, she's supposed to produce an heir with his brother. This is an old Old Testament law. And so she marries the brother, and then the brother dies, and then turns out there's seven of them. And after each death, she marries the next one, the next one, the next one. And by the way, how did the third brother feel here? Right? Or the fourth? Or the fifth? Right? Or the sixth? And so it's a, it's a humorous situation. But what they're saying is that if she's married to each one of them here, who will she be married to in the resurrection if it even exists? They're saying, here's the riddle for you, Jesus. If you believe in the resurrection, what happens to people who've had these multiple relationships? Who will they be married to in the resurrection? And here again, Jesus surprises everyone. He says in verse 24, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? He's saying, according to Scripture, if you guys were reading the Bible, according to Scripture, there will be a resurrection. Our existence does not, existence does not end at death. God is not God of the dead. God is the God of the living, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the resurrection will take place according to God's power. He will raise people from the dead, some to everlasting joy in God's renewed world and others to everlasting pain in hell. So Jesus says, if you believe the Bible, this is what it teaches. It teaches the resurrection. If you believe in the power of God, this is what's going to happen. Everything else, all your other questions are irrelevant because you don't believe in the basics. Jesus, Jesus says... If you, if you don't believe in the Bible or God's power, then all you, have, all you are left with is our, our human concepts to describe the afterlife. And so your whole thing about marriage in heaven is wrong because you're not using the Bible and you're not trusting the power of God. You're coming up with your own ideas. And that's why they don't make any sense. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what you believe about the afterlife or how absurd you think the resurrection is. You don't get to determine what happens after you die. You have to trust that God tells us what it is and you have to trust God that He will do it by His own power. So you see how Jesus gets behind the question and the Sadducees are trying to put Jesus into their system Jesus agree with us that the resurrection is absurd. And Jesus says, I'm not a piece to be put in your puzzle. I'm the pattern. You have to come to me and you have to ask me whether the resurrection exists and what happens. Now, I remember listening to a podcast that no, no connection to religion or anything that we're discussing here. But somehow they got talking about religion. And the question was about the afterlife. What happens after you die? And one lady, this Australian lady, 
uh, said, well, I am convinced, she said, I am convinced that whatever you believe happens after death will happen to you. In other words, if you believe that you're going to go to heaven and see your loved ones, you will go to heaven and see your loved ones. If you believe that you just live your life and then you die and you're gone, then you'll just be gone. If you believe there's some sort of a paradise and you can imagine it and you can expect it, then that's exactly what's going to happen to you. Now, this is even more absurd than the Sadducees riddle with the you know, seven husbands and one wife and all that. Because it doesn't matter, ultimately, what I think is going to happen or what anybody thinks is going to happen except for the person who controls what happens. You see, it only matters what God says because only God has the power to make it happen. None of us can prevent death. None of us can prepare to have anything happen after death. We are completely powerless. And that's why Jesus says, and I think this would be Jesus' response to, to this lady on the podcast. I think he would say, just as he said to the Sadducees, you are quite wrong. You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus says, submit your ideas about the afterlife to God's Word and to God's power. Put your puzzle pieces in the right places. Okay, third conversation, verses 28 through 34. Now, this conversation is different because the scribe is not trying to trap Jesus, and he seems genuinely open to learn about Jesus and from Jesus. So, so this is a different dynamic. He's open. In fact, Jesus commends him and says in verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, he's not, maybe he's not in the kingdom, but he's not far from the kingdom. Why? Because this scribe is willing to rearrange his puzzle pieces according to the pattern of the kingdom of God. He's coming with an open mind. He's actually agreeing with Jesus. He's not arguing. He's actually agreeing with Jesus. He's listening. He's accepting the truth that Jesus is, is speaking. Now, what is his question? Verse 28. Which commandment is the most important of all? Now, scribes were scholars of the law of Moses. They studied the law of Moses. And the law had many commandments. And it was very difficult to keep all of them, so you had to sort of prioritize. And the question is, what was the most important one of them? Is there one commandment that we can commit to and somehow through that commandment please God? Can we live a good life by just focusing on something more specific and more manageable? This is the question. Jesus answers, the biggest, the most important commandment is to love God with everything you are, your whole being, and love others as much as you love yourself. Now, he's not giving him something manageable, but he is giving him something very clear. How do you live your life? You live your life in relationship with God and in relationship with others. And the nature of all those relationships is love. So that I love God with everything I've got. My heart, my mind, my understanding, right, my strength, my, my body, everything is brought to God. And I love God with everything. That's what he expects. And I love other people as much as I love myself. So I will do things for them that I do for myself. I will give them gifts that I give to myself. 
I will try to comfort them the way I would like to be comforted. This is what Jesus says is this good life is. Everything flows from these two commandments. Okay, that's the third conversation. The fourth and final conversation is in verses 34 through 37. Now, you don't have the actual conversation, you just have Jesus' response, but apparently the scribes have been saying something about him or about the Messiah. The scribes have been saying that the Messiah or the Christ, same, same person, is David's descendant. He's David's son, King David's son, meaning that he comes from the family of David, this famous king of Israel that ruled over Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying, yes, I'm David's son, but I am more than that. I'm not just David's son. He's not disputing that he comes from David's family. What he's disputing is that you can define him simply by placing him in David's family. What he's saying is that, and he's quoting Psalm 110, and again, look at how Jesus is using Scripture throughout all these controversies because that's the pattern, that's the truth. He quotes from Psalm 110 where David says, this is King David speaking, he says that the Lord God said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand, sit on the throne. So David is saying to understand who the Messiah is, you have to see him as more than my descendant, more than a king like me. He's going to be a greater king. And Jesus says, if you want to understand who I am, you can't simply place me in the category of a Davidic king. Simply to expect that I will come and just like another David, I will restore the kingdom in Judea. He's saying my kingdom will be greater. If you're only expecting that this Davidic king will come and overthrow Rome and give you political freedom, that's only part of it. The scribes expected political liberation because a son of David would do that. Because that's what David did. But Jesus came to achieve much more. He came to liberate his people from all oppression, including our guilt before God, including being under God's judgment, including being in the power of death, being a slave to sin, and being under the rule of Satan. Jesus comes and says, my kingdom is greater. I, a son of David, is also the Lord of David. I, a descendant of David, also the one who brings David into this world. Once again, we see Jesus taking the puzzle pieces, right, that the scribes bring to him, the Davidic prophecy, the hope of liberation from Rome, and he's rearranging them, and he's putting them in a different pattern, his pattern, described in the scriptures and accomplished by his own death and resurrection. Now, these are the four controversies, but if you look at each one of them carefully, you will find that there are four questions here. Three of those questions are basic questions every human being asks to understand what our life is about, to find out if there's any meaning and purpose in our existence. Everybody's asking those questions. And the fourth question is actually the question that ties it all together. Now, if you look carefully what they're asking, now you have to look kind of beyond the actual questions they're asking as to what they're really trying to find out from Jesus. The first question is about taxes, but 
Jesus is making it about our identity. Right? So they're coming, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he says, look at the coin. Whose image? Whose image is on you? Who do you belong to? And so it answers that very important question. Is, the question is, who am I? Who am I? And Jesus' answer is, you're made in God's image and you belong body and soul to him. That's a worldview question. That's a question about life and identity. The second question was about the resurrection. So it's about the afterlife. And Jesus tells us what we must do to prepare for eternity. He tells us that, that there is a future for us and that future is determined by a, our present today. So that's the question, where am I going after I die? Everybody's wondering about that. What is my future? What is my destiny? That's a, another basic worldview question. Eternal happiness or eternal punishment are the two options Jesus gives us. The third question is about living rightly. Which commandment is the most important one? How should I live now is the question. Again, the basic worldview question. What am I supposed to do now? What is good? What is right? And Jesus says that the way to live well is to love God and to love others. Now, do you see that if you, if you look at these questions, these are the corner pieces of the puzzle. Jesus has actually given you the basic pieces of life. He's telling us, do you want to know who you are? You're made in God's image. Do you know where you're going? Either eternity with God or eternity apart from Him in torment. Do you want to know how to live now rightly? Love God and love others. He's given you all the main pieces. Now, that's the three corners. What's the fourth one? The fourth one is the one that ties it all together. And that question is, who is Jesus? Now, in the text, is whose son is Jesus, right? Is he just David's son or is he David's Lord? But the real question behind all of these questions is, who is Jesus? What do I do with him? How do I see him? And that's the one remaining corner piece. And you need all four. Who is Jesus? How you answer that question determines how you see the whole picture. How you see Jesus determines how you see yourself, what you expect to happen to you after death, and how you live your life now. Those are the pieces. Now, what will you do with Jesus? That's the main question of this chapter and the main question of the Bible. Now look at the parable in verses 1 through 12. It's meant to warn us not to reject Jesus. And it's meant to condemn those who do. This parable is told in response to the religious leaders of Israel rejecting Jesus at the end of chapter 11. You remember that they were questioning his authority. And so in response to their rejection of Jesus... He tells them the story, and the story is very simple. The owner of the vineyard sends a servant to collect his part of the harvest, so the rent, the payment, from the tenants he had leased the vineyard to. But the tenants beat the servant and send him back empty-handed. The owner sends another servant, 
and another and another. Some they beat, some they kill, but they do not pay what they owe to the owner. Finally, the owner sends his son, his beloved son, thinking that the tenants might reconsider, they might recognize how patient he has been with them, how important the vineyard is to him. But they kill the son. In fact, in their thinking, in their warped thinking, they're saying this is the heir, this is who's going to inherit the vineyard, so if we kill him, we're going to inherit the the, the vineyard. And then Jesus asked this terrifying question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? What is God going to do with those who reject Jesus? Verse 9. The answer is, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Far from inheriting the vineyard, they will lose not only the vineyard, but they will lose their lives. Now, does it seem harsh to you? Jesus is saying that if you reject me, you will be judged and everything will be taken away from you, including your lives. It is harsh, but it's honest. It is real. Jesus is not playing games with us. What he's talking about is, is, is eternally important. This is extremely important. Everything hinges on what you do with Jesus. And so you need to know what rejecting Jesus means. It means losing everything you're trying to hold on to, including your life. Keep rejecting God. Keep rejecting Jesus. Keep rejecting the source of all life. And you will lose everything. Hell is the only place in eternity where you can still do what you want. Where you can pray to yourself, my will be done. This is the only place where you will be able to do that in eternity. And Jesus is warning us against that. He's saying, be careful because if you reject me, This is what's going to happen to you. If you reject Jesus as the pattern, all your puzzle pieces will never fit together. And eventually you will end up with a bunch of pieces of paper that make no sense at all. But if you embrace Jesus, if you bring your puzzle pieces to him, he will put it together into a life that will have meaning now and in eternity. Friends, there is wonder in what Jesus is offering to us. He's talking to us, the wicked tenants, those who have rejected him, those who have rejected every messenger God has ever sent. And he's talking to us and he says, there's something marvelous that's going to happen if you turn to Jesus. The Jesus that you killed. There's something marvelous that happens here. What is it? Through his death, you will inherit the vineyard. Everything flips once we start seeing Jesus as he really is. Once we embrace that he is the pattern for the puzzle pieces. 
everything flips, and even his death, that is the most tragic thing that could have ever happened in human history. There's nothing more tragic than the cross of Jesus. But because he is the pattern, and we come and embrace him as such, we actually see it as the most beautiful and glorious thing that could have ever happened to us. Through his death and through his resurrection, Jesus actually restores everything to us, and we become the heirs of the vineyard. This, through embracing Jesus, his death and resurrection, we become reconciled to God, and through that reconciliation, everything else flows into our lives. As Jesus himself said in verses 10 through 11, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, Jesus says, and it is marvelous in our eyes. If you take Jesus as the pattern for your life puzzle, here's what you will find. He came to restore the image of God in us. Marred and almost destroyed by sin, by injustice, by idolatry, the likeness of God imprinted on every human being can only be restored by God becoming human killing that sin on the cross and renewing it in the resurrection. Listen to how Andy Crouch puts it. He says, in fact, what was set in motion in the incarnation, crucifixion and resurrection, was the restoration of true image bearing. In one of the Bible's finest moments of mistaken identity, John tells us of Mary Magdalene, meeting the risen Jesus in the garden by the open tomb and mistaking him for the gardener. Now, of course, she is wrong, and of course, she is quite right. Here in the garden, we have again a woman and a man inaugurating a new chapter in history. This time, not the sober and sad loss of the image, but the glad recovery and restoration of it. Jesus' life was utterly consistent with the life of a perfect image bearer. He loved God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. And he loved others, not as much as he loved himself, but more than he loved himself. He loved us so much that he gave his life for us. His death and resurrection map out our future. He too will die, but we too will die, but we will rise as he has. Now, who can I trust to tell me what will happen to me after I die? There's only one person. The one who died and rose again and came back and told us what happens. And when he comes again, everything God has for us, everything Jesus has will be ours. Now, homiletically, this is where I need to stop, <laughs> right? This is where the sermon needs to end. But I have these two examples at the end of this chapter that will push us even further into application. And, I, and I, just give me just five more minutes, okay? Because I want to stay here and I want to force us to really consider it. Not just walk away and forget about it, but really consider how we are to respond to Jesus, so there's the two examples. Here's the negative example in verses 38 through 40. 
Jesus says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now the scribes are making their own puzzles after their own patterns. They want others to see them as the pattern for their lives, but in reality, they're just hypocrites. Instead of loving God, they make long prayers for other people to hear. Instead of loving others, they take advantage of widows and take their property for themselves and enrich themselves. Now, this is an example of someone seeing God as a piece of the puzzle they can fit where it doesn't conflict with their own desires and ambitions. There are plenty of people who are religious and even spiritual, but who will receive condemnation. Does this describe you? These examples really push, push the gospel into our hearts. Are you like the scribes? You kind of like Jesus, as long as he fits with everything else, as long as he's just one of the pieces. But you haven't submitted all your pieces to him and accepted his pattern. He's just somebody who's there to agree with you. Somebody who can be kept in the realm of religion. That's the negative example. Here's the positive one. Jesus observes a poor widow. Perhaps poor because of the scribes. He observes this poor widow put in the offering at the temple two small copper coins. Now these two, there's nothing less valuable than these two small coins. In fact, only put together they make a penny, right? So it's a half a penny. It's not even a whole penny. And yet Jesus says this widow's generosity is greater than all the rich people that brought these these amazing amounts of money into the temple. He says in verses 34 34, Uh, 43 through 44. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. Jesus says, some people brought parts of their lives to God in worship. But this widow brought her whole life to God. That's the difference. The difference is not monetary. The difference is that some people brought a little bit of themselves to God. But she brought her whole self to God. And this is what Jesus wants. Bring everything to him. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Bring to him all the pieces. And let him Put them together according to his pattern. Friends, leave nothing out. One of the reasons why we see people walking away from Christ today and leaving the church is because they've lived their whole life in the church by keeping the Jesus peace just close enough to other pieces so it doesn't touch. And then when they realized it doesn't fit with the other pieces, they simply throw it out. But if that peace is not a peace but the pattern, you can never leave Jesus. 
Because Jesus is everything to you. Because he is the whole game. He is the whole pattern. Or as the apostle said in 1 Corinthians 1, and I'll finish with this, Jesus Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So will you boast in the Lord today?